The contents at lab reports are meant for educational purposes only and not to be misconstrued as medical diagnosis or treatment advice. Today on The Lab Report, we have Dr. Anna Lemke. Addiction specialist, best-selling author, and featured on Netflix's The Social Dilemma. She's going to help me with my bagel addiction. She should. The world of medicine can be challenging. Clinicians and patients are always looking for more options, more effective treatments, and in the end, more answers. Functional and integrative medicine focuses on addressing root causes of disease. Here at Genova Diagnostics, we've watched this field evolve and grow for over 35 years. We've not only adapted, we've led. Join us as we talk about functional medicine, laboratory testing, and optimizing health. Welcome to The Lab Report. So we watched this kid's movie. Which one? Super Pets. Okay. And one of the characters swore. And they what? they bleeped it out. What? I know, right? <gasps> Hello! Hi, Michael Chapman. How are you today? I'm all right. How are you, Patty Devers? I'm flabbergasted that they're bleeping out curse words in a cartoon. I agree. I am what with is you. the world coming to? I don't know. <sighs> How are you, Patty Devers? Crushing it and living my best life. Sweet. Well, this is a podcast. It's called The Lab Report. It's brought to you by Genovic Diagnostics, where we talk about things like functional medicine, specialty lab testing, and integrative therapeutics. Yeah, and if you're new to the show, welcome. And if you're returning, hopefully you would have gone to iTunes or Spotify and perhaps subscribed to this episode. And, I you mean, know, you're already there. And it is fall. Just you hit the button. And we're running a special. They're pumpkin spiced through mm-hmm. till Thanksgiving. So the subscribe to the show. Are the pumpkin subscri- spice? Subscriptions. Okay. Is that why you dump cinnamon all over the floor in here? That's right. Okay. Uh, well, if you have feedback, you can always send that feedback to podcast at gdx.net. That is our email address. Mm-hmm. Or just head over to social media. You can find us on all the platforms at Genova Diagnostics. Speaking of social media. What? We're going to be talking a little <gasps> bit about social media I, today. I am so excited about this episode. I've been dying to speak with this woman. I actually reached out to her to yeah. book her for the show. I'm going to say six months ago. She's that busy. This is, the, this is a big deal. Totally. She's incredible. Mm-hmm. Her insight is incredible. Her books are incredible. And The Social Dilemma was pretty good as well. It was fascinating and terrifying at yeah. the same time. But I sort of feel like Dr. Anna Lemke is the perfect person to come on our show because mm-hmm. for those of us who are in functional medicine, we're always talking about how behavior changes often at the root yes. of getting to the root cause of a chronic problem. Right. And she, she's all about that. And we all know, you know, the impact of technology, the impact of screens, and, and really just everything in our society and the way it's hitting our dopamine fix. We use this phrase a lot, you know, just kind of colloquially. It's like, got to get my dopamine hit and that sort of thing. <laughs> but like, true. she really wrote a book it's on true. it. It's yeah. true. Um, and we're going to talk about that book. So I can't, I can't wait. Let's just uh, let's call her up. Let's do this. Patty. Today, Michael. did you know we have Dr. Uh, Anna Lemke? Freaking out. Right? I'm freaking out. I know, I know. So <laughs> let me tell you uh, a little bit about Dr. Anna Lemke. So Dr. Anna Lemke is a professor of psychiatry at Stanford University School of Medicine and chief of the Stanford Addiction Medicine Dual Diagnosis Clinic. A clinician scholar, she has published more than 100 peer-reviewed papers, book chapters, and commentaries. She sits on the board of several state and national addiction-focused organizations and has testified before various committees in the United States House of Representatives and Senate, keeps an active speaking calendar and maintains a thriving clinical practice. In 2016, she published Drug Dealer MD, How Doctors Were Duped, Patients Got Hooked, and Why It's So Hard to Stop, which was highlighted in the New York Times as one of the top five books to read to understand the opioid epidemic. And Dr. Lemke recently appeared on the Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma, an unvarnished look at the impact of social media on our lives. 
Her New York Times bestselling book, Dopamine Nation, Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence, explores how to moderate compulsive overconsumption in a dopamine overloaded world. And with that... Welcome to the show, Dr. Anna Lemke. Thank you so much. Oh, gosh. Thank you for having me. Thank you for that wonderful introduction. And your enthusiasm is palpable. So <laughs> I, I appreciate it. <laughs> we've been dying to talk to you, ma'am, because, you know, we, we've all seen you and seen the social dilemma. Yeah. And we were terrified. But digging deeper, <laughs> you were featured to discuss the dopamine hit and why social media is addicting. And you also wrote that best-selling book, Dopamine Nation. So let's talk about dopamine to begin with. Can you give us kind of the basics of dopamine and the, the reward system in our brain. Sure. So dopamine is a chemical that we make in our brains. It's a neurotransmitter, which means it's, it bridges that gap between neurons. Neurons are those long spindly cells in the brain that make the electrical circuits that make us who we are. And there's a little gap between neurons called the synapse and neurotransmitters bridge that gap to allow for fine tuning. Dopamine is not the only neurotransmitter involved in pleasure, reward, and motivation, but it's probably the most important one. And it may be even more important for motivation than it is for reward or pleasure. So for example, there's a very famous experiment in which mice were bioengineered to lack dopamine receptors in that specific reward circuit of their brains. And what the researchers discovered is that if they put food in that mouse's mouth, it would eat the food and seem to get pleasure from the food. But if they put the food even one body length away, the mouse would starve to death. Hmm. Wow. In other words, we need dopamine in order to make us be willing to do the work to go get our reward. And we also need dopamine in order to experience the reward. The more dopamine a substance or behavior releases in the reward pathway, the more potentially addictive a substance is. Hmm. Got it. Got it. Well, and it makes me wonder too, that, that notion that you said about dopamine serving the function of, of essentially pushing us to do the work. Um, and so I wonder about the consequences of essentially dopamine hits per se, without even having to do any work, such as staring at, at YouTube or social media or whatnot. Right. And th that's a great point. And it essentially distills the problem of modernity that we have today, that we have these uber potent drugs at the touch of our fingertips that don't require us to do much work and release a whole lot of dopamine all at once in the reward pathway, which is precisely why they're so pernicious and so addictive, because our brains were not evolved for that. Our brains were evolved for a world of scarcity and ever present danger where resources were um, difficult to come by and required an enormous amount of potentially life-threatening work to get them. Um, and then getting that reward consisted of a dopamine release that essentially returned us to baseline homeostasis. Mm. What we have now is rewards that go way above baseline that cause this intense and immediate pleasure or rush that the brain is then reeling to compensate from and does that by essentially downregulating our own dopamine production and transmission, right. not just to baseline, but actually below baseline to this dopamine deficit state. And that's what happens in the brain as people become addicted. They essentially get in a chronic dopamine deficit state where they're not making their own dopamine. And now they need enormous amounts of pleasure, not to get high, but just to feel normal. And when they're not using, they're walking around in a kind of a perpetual state of withdrawal. Does it become a problem of the production of dopamine or is there become like a resistance at the receptor level? It's probably both, in okay. all honesty. There's just sort of a global downregulation, which is probably in part a reduction 
in the production of dopamine in the brain, mm -hmm. especially in this reward circuitry, but also probably an involution or downregulation of the postsynaptic dopamine receptors. Got it. Yeah. Got it. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, given that it plays such a huge role in behavior, in your book you discuss this concept of dopamine fasting. Um, how can we use that in our lives and in our patients' lives for this kind of behavior change? Well, dopamine fasting really is a kind of neuroscience-informed approach to psychiatric symptoms. The idea being that it's very possible that the reason that we're seeing increasing rates of depression, anxiety, suicide across the world, especially in rich nations, is because we're bombarding our reward pathway with, with so many small hits of dopamine. Um, you know, from the moment that we wake up and reach for our smartphone to the morning coffee to that sugar donut, all the way to the Netflix binge in the evening. Mm -hmm. At in essence, uh, our this fire hose of dopamine has caused our brain to try to compensate unsuccessfully by massively downregulating our own dopamine transmission putting us into this dopamine deficit state. So the natural way to reverse that is to avoid or issue intoxicants or really anything that's immediately reinforcing that makes us feel good. Uh, whether it's in the form of food or digital drugs or traditional drugs like cannabis alcohol. Um, in particular, in our clinical work, when we suggest an abstinence trial or a dopamine fast, we generally ask people to select that one drug that they really struggle with. So we don't, it's not like the Silicon Valley dopamine fast where we say, go, go live in a cave for a month. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We say, you know, come up with that one drug or behavior that you really have this difficulty with. Once you start, it's difficult to stop. It's, you know, you're running into trouble. Uh, the, you know, the, the, the basic definition of addiction is the continued compulsive use of a substance or behavior despite harm to self and or others. Mm -hmm. The way that we Diagnose that is based on these 11 criteria in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders that can be encompassed by the four C's, control, cravings, compulsions, and consequences. So whether or not you're you know, already addicted or just halfway there, what we recommend is that you, you, you figure out what your problematic drug is, including digital drugs, and you eliminate it for four weeks in order to reset reward pathways and restore dopamine firing back to its baseline. Okay, so using that logic, as you just described, when we talk about addictions in general, we're, it's kind of like the fine line between, is it abstinence or moderation? So by that logic, you're saying it would have to be abstinence if, if it's to be long-term. So here's the deal. <laughs> the long-term goal and the short-term goal um, can can whatever your long-term goal is, even if it's moderation, the way to get there is through a period of abstinence. Got it. Yeah. And usually we recommend about four weeks because four weeks is the average amount of time it takes to reset reward pathways, to get out of that cycle of compulsive overconsumption, and to actually be able to experience the joy of more modest rewards without constantly craving your drug of choice. So Makes moderation sense. is possible, mm -hmm. but the way to get there is first by abstaining for four weeks, resetting those reward pathways, and then going back into using your drug of choice with self-binding barriers in place to try to help you moderate your use. That makes sense. Yeah, it does. So it's interesting because I know you're focusing on like what that main drug of choice is, but then also knowing in our environment how much dopamine hit there mm -hmm. is everywhere we turn around. Mm -hmm. It makes me think of growing up and basically 
being out like with a stick digging a hole <laughs> in the yard for a long time as a childhood. Like I wonder about the the ability to use nature um, and getting outside and, and hikes and things like that as an alternative to some of the just general dopamine hits we experience. Yeah, you know, you're making a really important point, which is if you grew up having to dig holes with a stick, then, you know, when you got a shovel, you'd be so excited, right? right? Like, cool, a shovel. <laughs> but if you were, when you were little, instead of getting a stick, you got a bulldozer, hmm. then, you know, a shovel wouldn't be very interesting. Hmm. And that's essentially the problem that we're facing now, this problem of modernity, this incredible, we, we, we can't go any higher. You know, technology has allowed us to go so high that we've essentially saturated our pleasure receptors. Mm. Um, so it's really hard to find joy in the modern world. One of the ways to do that is to do things like go into nature, to you know be still and be quiet, to decrease the total amount of stimulation, which is in a way decreasing the amount of dopamine hits. Mm -hmm. But the other way is actually to intentionally do things that are difficult or hard. So as well as avoiding intoxicants, what we need to do is invite uh, pain into our lives, both physical pain in moderation, mm -hmm. as well as psychological and cognitive pain in moderation in order to be able to reset our reward pathways. Yeah. Well, that's a whole yeah. other conversation there too. <laughs> Embracing the beauty of boredom <laughs> yeah. and pain, right? Um, I want to get to this question too, as it relates to social media and dopamine, uh, something that's been, you know, coming out more and more research around. So your children also made a brief appearance in the social dilemma. Are you concerned about children growing up around social media focused environment uh, and how that's affecting reward systems and how do parents mitigate this? Man, that's a frightening one for me. Yeah, I'm, I'm really worried about it. One of the, my main motivations for writing Dopamine Nation was uh, my concern about the world that you know young people are growing up in now, the way that they're weaned on this technology, the way that it's really changed people's brains, all of our brains. But I'm worried especially about young people in terms of the way that you know they're saturating their dopamine receptors, losing the ability for sustained focus or to tolerate boredom or to be happy with you know just sort of an average amount of pleasure. Um, also, really concerned about especially social media and the way that it's created the illusion of connection, but not necessarily providing real connections in the real world. Mm -hmm. um, I think some young people are starting to figure this out and intentionally going out of their way to you know, be together in the real world and, and disconnect from the virtual world. Mm -hmm. But you know, we, we still have a long way to go and it's not easy to do because these digital um, you know, products are just so incredibly alluring for all of us. Yeah. And, yeah. When, and when we think about the world that our children are growing up in, in the world that we live in, not only is it social media and an excessive dopamine hits, I'm struck by this concept that although you've very succinctly defined addiction, we know that society sometimes re it rewards behaviors that may seem addictive, like a workaholic or a winning mm -hmm. athlete. Like mm -hmm. that's addictive type behavior. So my question to you is when you're trying to navigate this world, knowing that society does reward certain behaviors, where's that line? Like, where do yeah. you know that this becomes a problem? Yes, that fourth C, the consequences is different yeah. is, is, depending is on the Is that really what it is? Yeah. Yeah, such a great point. You're absolutely right. I think the workaholism and also the, the athletic piece, especially a way that children's sports have become mm -hmm. now like so professionalized at younger and younger ages, plus then augmented by social media where they're now, 
you know, um, comparing themselves, not just to people on their team, but like people all over the country or all over the world at age 13, Mm -hmm. you know, we know who the fastest miler is in the entire United States. That's absurd. Mm. Um, so yeah, so I, you know, it is, it is hard to, to know where that line is between adaptive, passionate engagement with a, um, a behavior or, or even a substance and where we've crossed over, you know, into addiction. I think the first step is really just openly talking about it and acknowledging it and also including in the ways in which, you know, workaholism is so celebrated in our culture and, and other types of narcissistically invested endeavors. And yet ultimately can be very destructive for the individual and for their own relationships. So uh, the first piece I think is just awareness and acknowledgement that that is a form of maladaptive coping. Um, and then, you know, like with all addictions, trying to give it up. Sometimes we don't know we're addicted unless we try, you know, we give it up and then we experience the withdrawal initially, the pain of letting it go. But if we can sit with that pain for long enough and get over the hump of withdrawal, often people will have a kind of a revelation or a moment of insight where they say, oh, wow, you know, I am so much happier now. (laughs) I thought chasing this thing, you know, was the, was going to make me happy. Mm -hmm. But I, I really realize now, you know, that I have an identity separate from these accolades you know, in the real world and that connecting with that, you know, quiet part of my identity that's not attached to um, chasing this high is is really a much deeper connection and more fulfilling for me and better for my relationships. So again, this is a sort of, I think, experientially, people have to figure that out. And, and as what I advocate is doing an experiment, mm-hmm. really, life is one grand experiment, and we have to continue to tinker at it and not take it face value that getting this prize, you know, becoming the mark next Jeff Bezos or Mark Zuckerberg or going to the Olympics. Society tells us that those are the prizes that we should want. But I think that and we need to really, you know, push back on that and really ask, ask ourselves and others if that's true. And then do little experiments in our own lives where we give that up mm. and see what, what, you know, how it makes us feel, acknowledging that if it involves dopamine, we will feel worse before we get, you know, feel better. And that's one of the most important things that I have to tell my patients when they give up their drug of choice. They're like, I, but I feel terrible. It's like, yes, you will feel worse. Right. But if you can just wait it out, your brain will re-equilibrate and then you'll feel better. Yeah. Wow. That's so profound. That is profound. I mean, reward is not the same thing as contentment, right? Reward right. always seeks more reward. So right. that, that's an interesting part of it. We know that, um, you know, s- some of the clinical factors around dopamine dysregulation in the brain, I think about like the awakenings, but also some other clinical conditions. But have, do we have any research on long-term effects of just this um, dopamine dysfunction uh, over the period of, you know, five, 10 years? Yeah, I mean, the the long-term research is mainly in people with addiction, um, you know, to substances like uh, cannabis, nicotine, alcohol, cocaine, opioids. Um, And what we see is that it it, it basically chronic exposure to highly reinforcing drugs and probably behaviors leaves a permanent scar on the brain. It does change the brain irrevocably. Now, that doesn't mean that people can't get into recovery um, because recovery is possible and millions of people around the world are are the living um, example of that. 
but, but my colleague here at Stanford, Edie Sullivan, has done some interesting work looking at what happens in the brain when people recover and found that probably what's happening is that we're creating new neural networks that reroute hmm. around those damaged areas, but that those damaged areas, you know, are, are, are permanent. It, you know, as it relates to our audience, which is a lot of clinicians, we think about dopamine and dopamine problems as it relates to Parkinson's, substantia nigra. Mm-hmm. Is there any connection between, you know, long-term excessive addictive behavior right. and eventual Parkinson's, or are they two separate concepts? So the, the overlap between Parkinson's and addiction is, is really interesting. First of all, you know, as you know, Parkinson's is characterized by a depletion of dopamine production in the substantia nigra. Mm-hmm. So interestingly, um, there is no depletion of dopamine in the reward circuit in people with Parkinson's. So it appears to be a very a separate and mm-hmm. isolated phenomenon to the substantia nigra. But as you know, often the treatment for Parkinson's is to give uh, L-DOPA or a dopamine precursor that passes the blood-brain barrier because dopamine itself, if I give you a spoonful of dopamine, it wouldn't do anything because it wouldn't pass your blood-brain barrier. But L-DOPA passes the blood-brain barriers converted to dopamine, um, which then helps with the the low dopamine levels in the substantia nigra, but then unfortunately also leads to um, a sudden increase in dopamine all over the brain, including the reward pathway, which then can actually lead to de novo um, addiction Mm. in people with Parkinson's, as well as an exacerbation of addiction in people who may have had a co-occurring Parkinson's disorder. So there are many, many reports uh, showing that people treated with with Parkinson's who are treated with uh, L-DOPA have an increased um, incidence of gambling disorders and Mm. other addictive disorders. Um, Also, um, for, as further proof that it is the L-DOPA and not some phenomenon related to the Parkinson's per se, is that mm-hmm. when those individuals are taken off of their L-DOPA, that those behaviors usually spontaneously resolve. That's intriguing. <clears throat> yeah, that's, intriguing. that's fascinating. Mike, we have like hundreds of I know, hundreds I of could go on forever. We're going to keep this poor well, woman I, here all day. I, I'll say one thing that I have learned. So at my house, <laughs> whenever we get frustrated with an item, we threaten to throw it in the pool jokingly, such right. as the television or the phones or what have you. But I, I think... That might be a good and appropriate response as a parent is what I'm learning. Maybe that's <laughs> hyperbole, perhaps, but... Um, uh, yeah, how, how old are your kids? How seven and three, kids? seven and three. Yeah, so you're great. You're still in this window where you actually have control over them. Mm-hmm. Wait till they get to 13 and they'll have a mind of their own. And what I recommend... I'm not going to gonna allow that, though. That, I mean. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> what I recommend to parents is that, that while you still have control uh, in your household, that you actually exert that control and you very proactively limit the amount of time that your kids have on screens and you closely monitor that time because it really is the wild wild west out there and quantity and frequency matters the more we expose our kids to screens and the digital products that they have access to on those screens frankly the more likely they are to get addicted to a digital drug so you know frequency quantity it really matters as well as what they're actually doing on there some people will be like well my child is doing you know something creative it's like well okay you know yeah yeah right Right. but but, you know even so um right that the screen itself is reinforcing the flickering light a kind of primitive fire um and then also really important in these early years to help your kids create um coping strategies that don't depend on dopamine, you know, and to teach them interpersonal skills, 
uh, in real life, you know, how to socialize, how to tolerate frustration, how to manage um, conflict or disagreement. And then, as you mentioned earlier, with getting into nature, really important to encourage our kids early on the value and the joy of connecting with nature, connecting with their own bodies through exercise, martial arts, mm-hmm. other mind-body practices, so that when they get into those distressing years, you know, their tween and teen years, and they're dealing with all kinds of roller coasters of emotions and peer conflict, they know that they have some coping, some healthy coping strategies to fall back on. They can go immerse themselves in nature. They can do some exercise. They can pray. They can meditate. That's really the key. Yeah, great, brilliant. great brilliant. advice. Like yeah. all of those coping mechanisms versus depending on the like button. So right. this is far well, better. Right. Well, and I'm lucky because Dr. Lemke has essentially informed me that anytime I have a parenting question, <laughs> I'm, call her I'm up. Oh, yeah, exactly. Let's just call <laughs> yeah, her right up. Yeah, no, feel free. The other thing too, which I should add, is that it's really important what we model for our kids. I yeah. see a lot of right. families where parents are like, "I got to get my my kid needs to stop playing video games," but that parent you know, is constantly on their phone, supposedly for work. And maybe it is even is for work. But if we don't model what we want our kids to do, then they're not going to do it. Um, even when we model it, they might not do it. But we don't have, you know, a fighting chance unless we're also modeling. Brilliant. Yeah. Brilliant. So in order to do that, sometimes, you know, when I talk about this dopamine fasting or abstinence sampling, I, can, I ask families to do that all together in the form of a digital Sabbath, one day a week where nobody touches a device or, mm-hmm. or looks at a screen, including television, uh, you know, or a week-long vacation with no devices. Those are really, really helpful and allow families to really deeply reconnect with each other. Yeah. Brilliant. And I feel like if I really evaluate kind of my own devices mm-hmm. all around that, mm-hmm. the problem is I think one of the reasons why they're on the screen is because it's such a digital babysitter so that then we can, as wow. adults, right. seek out our own dopamine hit. Wow. Yes, that's right. You're actually having yeah, therapy right here, Michael. <laughs> If you, if you look at how families have you know interacted through through most of human history, um, families not only did what little leisure time they had together in group activities, but they also spent most of their waking hours doing work together. And of course, mm-hmm. working together, as you two know, uh, being colleagues is a wonderful way to create deep and strong human connections. Now what we have in the modern world is a double whammy. We don't work with our children. We're not um, collaborating you know, in labor on a farm, right? Mm. Or even in many cases in a family business. Adults go off to their separate work. Kids go off to their daycare and they, their school and we reconvene at some point later in the day. So that some point later in the day becomes very important. Now, when our leisure activity and our reconvening activity is then also separate, everybody's in a different room right. with their own separate screen, you essentially lose you lose the threads of any meaningful connection with the people in your family. And that's just a disaster mm-hmm. for family. That's yeah. phenomenal. Yeah. And Michael is getting free therapy. Just so you know, Dr. Lemke, that's why we're looking at this. <laughs> yeah. But, well, our family will work together in putting all of the screens into right. the pool. So I just have to let our that's HOA it. know. There you go. <laughs> well, Dr. Anna Lemke, we can't thank you enough for coming on the show. We were dying to talk to you, and you did not disappoint. But we want to make sure that all of our all of our listeners check out Dr. Lemke's books, Drug Dealer MD, How Doctors Were Duped, Patients Got Hooked, and Why It's So Hard to Stop, as well as Dopamine Nation, Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence, and, of, of course, checking out The Social Dilemma. But before we let you go, Dr. Lemke, we do have one last nonsense question that I'm going to kick to Michael Chapman. Yeah, this is a goofball question called The Fireball. It's meant to be the, the hardest fireball. question of the day. So hot you can't stand it. 
And so my question for you is, through the eyes of Dr. Anna Lemke, what is the most addictive aroma? Oh, gosh, that's got to be chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good one. That's Excellent. a good one. Although you said through the eyes of Dr. Lemke. What? You really mean like the nose of Dr. Lemke. Well, <laughs> good point. Good point. Well done. Right. Well, again, Dr. Lemke, we're so honored that you spent time with us. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, you're very welcome. It's my pleasure. Well, that was fascinating. But I did learn something about you, Michael, that's finally come to realization. What's that? You use this podcast as a vehicle for parenting advice, no matter what expert <laughs> you got comes me, on. Man, you got me. <laughs> it's funny, as you were coming to that realization, I was coming to the realization of, what's my homeowners association going to think <laughs> when they find all of our someone's electronic devices in the pool? <laughs> no, but I think she was profound, and I think there's something in there for everyone who's listening. I Absolutely. Think she's such practical advice. There was it's it really makes you stop and think, right? I'm rethinking my whole life. You should. I'll put a reminder in my phone to rethink my life. <laughs> Next time on the Lab Report, Dr. Brian Jerby, gut specialist and host of the podcast called The Gut Connection. Podcast, eh? You think he wants any jingles made for him? Oh no! Outsource no. my jingles? No. You've been listening to the Lab Report. If you like what you hear please subscribe to our podcast, rate us, and leave us a review. To learn more about Genova Diagnostics, visit our website at gdx.net. There you'll find information on specific testing, educational resources, and how to connect with our show. Call us at 1-800-522-4762 or email us at podcast at gdx.net. Do you remember the Sunday comics? Of course I do. Do they still do that? Yes. I haven't seen a newspaper in like 10 years. So do they still make them and do they still have comics? I, I believe they still have them and still do. But it, you'd have to ask someone who actually gets the newspaper and finding that person is going to be very difficult. What was your favorite Sunday comic? I'm going to say Marmaduke because it's a funny word. Mar Marmaduke. I didn't even know that was one. What? Marmaduke? I've never heard of Marmaduke. It's a huge dog. What? That was part of this family. How old was that? <laughs> well, that was not in my Sunday well, comics. I'm pretty old. <laughs> <laughs> What's yours? Uh, the Far Side. Oh, that is the best one. <laughs> not as fun to say as Marmaduke, though. Certainly not.